Love and Haste by Andrew Colcher. Chapter 2 If you can't see Sam Curtis, then you might be looking the wrong way. Or it might be because I haven't told you yet which way or where to look for him. It's more likely that you haven't seen him yet because your imagination needs a little assistance. So let me take you by your hand and describe the scene in front of us. The date today is somewhere in the middle of January, just far enough from Christmas and New Year's for celebrations to be a dying memory, and just a little too far away from payday. The time is 8am and we're in Britain, which means 8am in January it's still pretty much as dark as night. We're in a town called Woodbridge, in a county called Suffolk, in a country called England, etc, etc. There's a row of red brick houses called Brook Street. Woodbridge has some nice bits that are kept neat and clean by the parish council and fussed over by the city dwellers who have retired to this small town from their noisy, noisy city. These people tend to be more suspicious of newcomers than the locals are. But as with any town, Woodbridge also has a few scruffy streets and ratty-looking rows of houses. The sort of houses tourists would call quaint. And it's in one of these small terraced houses of which there are millions in England, that Sam Curtis lives. It's true that the first thing you'll notice about Sam's mid-terraced house is there are quite a number of broken tiles on the roof, and two of the sections of his old sash windows are glazed with sticky tape and cardboard from old breakfast cereals. Sam would be the first person to admit that his front garden has grown weeds that are so large they could give a triffid nightmares. There are four wheelie bins blocking light from the shabby downstairs window next to the tatty and rotten front door. Each wheelie bin is a different colour for a different type of Sam's waist. It's worth pausing for a moment to mention just how upset English people get over refuse disposal. Two world wars and countless recessions are taken on the chin. But when faced with bins that have to go out on different days of the week according to colour and content, they draw an imaginary line that they believe separates the reasonable from the ludicrous in life. For the English, bin-related troubles are widely declared as being so far into the ludicrous territory they're no longer visible to the naked eye. This feeling of wheelie-bin-related despair is expressed through writing letters to newspapers and making phone calls to local radio stations in upset voices. They have a sort of emotionally strained quality about them, these phone calls. Sam Kurtz has no such concerns about his trash. His front fence was removed by vandals a long time ago, and crime that has the upside of meaning that Sam needn't remember to put his bins out at all. The bin men just reach into his front garden and help themselves. So in conclusion, you could say Sam's little house was a bit of a mucky looking crap hole, but to be fair to Sam, it's perfectly in keeping with the rest of the street. We won't dwell for too long on the description of Sam Curtis's back garden, but that's more to do with the fact it used to be a sort of communal toilet used by every cat within a couple of square miles. That's what happens if you cover your garden in pea shingle. Instead, we'll skip the description of the back of Sam's house entirely and float like a ghost in through a bird poo street window into the 60-watt glow of a tiny kitchen. Ignore for a moment the distraction of a sink overflowing with dirty dishes and study instead the slumped figure sat at the minuscule kitchen table that, right there, is a living, breathing, genuine Sam Curtis. The reason it's worth pointing out that he is in fact living and breathing is to look at him right now, with a spoon hanging from his mouth and his head hanging close to his breakfast bowl of chocolate marshmallow pops, 
You might not believe he's actually alive. But he is alive, just not very awake. Sadly, his clothes will do very little to convince you of his vitality. Quite frankly, at this time of the morning, Sam has the dressing skills of a zombie. His tie is askew, the back of his shirt is untucked, and from a vantage point that I urge you not to find, you can see that his flies are undone. At this time of the day, the only smart and proper thing about Sam Curtis is his hair. And that's because he hasn't got much of it. There's not much of it to run amok. Sam doesn't shave his head to hide male pattern baldness or to try and appear tough. He merely shaves his head as it requires less maintenance that way. As far as Sam is concerned, hair, if allowed to run wild and actually grow, requires washing, drying, styling, cutting, and any number of other annoying and costly inconveniences. At least, that's what he keeps telling himself, as do a lot of men in their thirties when they notice they're growing an accidental quiff alarmingly bordered on each side of their forehead by a widening margin of flesh. You may have seen Sam stir a little bit just then. Don't worry, he can't see us. He's just remembered that he's made a cup of instant coffee and is trying to remember where he put it down. For some reason this appears to require some crude words and mumbling. After a slurp of nearly cold coffee, Sam reaches forward and gives the small portable television at the far end of his kitchen table a little thump. And after enough crackles and pops to give an electrician night terrors, the orange faces of two breakfast television presenters appear on the screen. Their chirpy banter irritates Sam, and he squints at the screen in a lazy attempt to block them out. Sam Curtis watches breakfast television as part of a routine he's been locked in since childhood. Way back when breakfast telly was the first place that school closures were announced, schools are often closed in heavy snow, heavy rain, or if located in Suffolk because of a myriad of other bizarre reasons. Of course it's been many years since Sam was at school, but he watches for closures in a whimsical hope that one day he'll see the female perky presenter announce that due to high winds or locust swarm, his workplace will be shut for the day. Sam works in a road haulage company, and his place of work is a porter cabinet nearby Felixstowe Docks, so the high winds threat does have some promise to it. You might be thinking at this point that Sam is hoping a swarm of locusts might save him from a day at work means that he doesn't enjoy his job. And you'd be right. Sam feels much the same way about his job as foxes feel about fox hunts, a mixture of fear, loathing and a crushing certainty that toffs with the cash, in this case his boss, will carry on their tirade of evil regardless of public opinion, law or even common decency. After some particularly inane banter between the two telepresenters who are perched precariously on a big settee, the weather girl bounces onto the screen with all the energy of a jackrabbit that's been mainlining coffee granules. The effect on Sam's sensitive self is immediate and nauseating, so he leaves the kitchen to go in search of his shoes. I couldn't tell you where Sam found his shoes, because, of course, we're still stuck in his kitchen. But finding them involves more low cussing and for some reason a fair bit of coughing. Sam is back at the table now. He's grabbed a black marker pen on his way past the telephone. And as you can see, he's using it to colour in the scuff marks on a very tired looking old pair of shoes. He's still ignoring the weather woman. It's still dark outside and her personality is just jarring. One item catches his attention though. Just one bit of chatter among the swarming cacophony of inane banter spewing out of the television at him. The orange face on the screen is telling the nation not to make too much fuss about cold weather, because in New England in America they were having the harshest winter for 60 years. It wasn't a fascination with meteorological matters that caught Sam's attention, it was the mention of New England. 
For all the miserable years he'd spent sat in the dank porter cabin in Felixstowe, his boss laughingly called his headquarters, he had fantasised about being somewhere else. At first, anywhere else would do. He fantasised about stowing away on one of the trucks that his company owned, trucks full of whatever had just been unloaded at Felixstowe docks. But that fantasy was stifled by the reality that it was his job to send those trucks speeding off around the county, and he knew exactly where they were headed. So they weren't so much heading away to faraway places with exotic-sounding names as they were trundling off to grim industrial towns with names that had become bywords for grime and social deprivation. So the fantasy had to change. Like a lot of English folk raised up in American films, television and burger chains, Sam has something of a fascination with the US of A. The states of New England hold a special fascination for him. Despite the fact Sam Curtis grew up in a county where it's almost impossible to drive in a straight line for more than a few miles without hitting a thousand-year-old church or castle, he has become fascinated with the history of Massachusetts and Rhode Island, and the parts they played in forming what then became the United States of America. Sam knows a little bit about Bill Bacon from what his parents have told him, and knowing that he had a vague connection with Massachusetts was what first drew his wandering eye to New England. Although he's never met him, Sam feels like he knows Uncle Bill quite well. Although in reality he only knows one side of Bill Bacon quite well, as he was quite often used by Sam's parents as the subject of cautionary moral tales. After their time at university with Bill Bacon, Sam's parents trickled down East Anglia from Norfolk to Suffolk like unadventurous economic migrants. They followed ever more secure and uninspiring jobs in local government until they eventually dripped down as far as Woodbridge. They were charmed by the cleaner and more presentable parts of the town and decided to settle down, possibly settle for, Woodbridge because they thought it was a good place to raise a family. For one reason or another their family never grew beyond Sam, but they were a happy family, always content to settle for comfort and security over adventure and risk. But let's leave Sam Curtis as he hunts for his keys. We're going to travel forward in time by five hours. It's okay, we can do things like that. Because on the other side of the world, somebody else is getting ready to leave their house. And I'd very much like you to meet her. In a suburb of Washington, D.C., in those United States of America, there's a house that couldn't be more different from Sam's Curtis's house if it tried. But as we know, houses don't try to do very much of anything at all. Unlike Sam's house, every window of this house contains crystal clear glass, and every red brick is perfectly uniform and perfectly clean. An estate agent would probably describe this house as having an impressive neo-Gothic frontage. The estate agent would then go on to explain just how marvellously exclusive the neighbourhood is, and he'd offer you some coffee. While his description of the property would be wholly accurate, the coffee would be cheap and the biscuits would be stale. <laughs> There'd be no gliding through a bird shit stained window into a house like this. Instead, I'm going to glide you gracefully up the stone steps and through the large black and brass front door. There's a small set of shelves behind the front door where the occupier files post into categories according to urgency, size and envelope colour. Just below the shelf is a row of immaculately polished but quite sensible shoes. Beside the sensible shoes is a pair of cherry red stiletto heeled vamp up numbers. You know the type. Sort of shoe that takes an age to put on, deforms your feet, hurts like hell, but can make a man weak at knees at 50 paces. 
If those shoes could tell tales, they'd be far too loyal to admit how many times they've tripped up their owner, nor would they admit just how many times they've had their heels replaced. This house, well, this large floor of this large house, is a plain affair, and as we drift over the immaculate leather sofas of the lounge area and into the enormous black granite and stainless steel kitchen, I want you to say hello to Charlie Page. She won't hear you, but manners are manners, however ethereal you are. If you've ever had the misfortune to spend a lot of time in a dentist's waiting room, you might recognise this kitchen. It was once featured on page 60 of Perfect Kitchens Monthly magazine, also known as Kitchens You Can't Afford, not even if you paid in monthly instalments over several lifetimes magazine. If you missed that issue, then you'd be wondering why all the cups on the racks face the same way. You may be amazed at how the shape of a huge ceiling light echoes the subtle curve of the basin mixer tap. You'll be agog at the stainless steel and brushed aluminium appliances, and then distracted by a rather attractive young Charlie Page, who is currently gracing one end of a vast black granite breakfast bar. Charlie Page is a blonde lady in her early thirties, of slender build and medium height, and in case you're wondering, yes, collar and cuff do match. But then you probably weren't wondering, in which case I apologise for lowering the tone. Charlie is dressed in a razor-sharp dark grey skirt, with a jacket as black as night, and a shirt as white as a very white thing. This morning everything about Charlie Page is politely screaming perfection, even her hair is doing exactly what she wants it to, and it's behaving itself into a nice, neat bob. Charlie is getting ready to leave the house. And unlike Sam Curtis, she isn't starting a day with her face in a bowl of children's breakfast cereal. That chrome and plastic device in front of Charlie is a state-of-the-art juicer. Charlie is feeding the device with pre-chopped and washed organic fair trade fruit that has been carefully chosen for its high fibre, low-carb antioxidant qualities. Whilst cramming fruit into the juicer, she's watching a facial exercise programme on the enormous television in the corner of the adjacent open-plan dining area and occasionally contorting her face to match that of the plastic-looking instructor on the screen. Awkwardly holding one ear to her shoulder, and delicately placing a finger in her other ear, Charlie places the lid on the juicer and tentatively switches it on. After just a few seconds of being deafened by a noise that sounds like a handful of dentist drills being thrown into a cement mixer full of scrap metal, the oral ordeal is over. And Charlie smiles proudly, totally convinced that she has made her own breakfast. This morning, Charlie's ironising alarm clock failed to wake her, so she's running a little on the late side. I only say this so you know why you've just seen her drink directly from the jug part of her juicer. And maybe then you'll forgive the giant fruity smile she's now wearing on her cheeks either side of her mouth. As Charlie passes the polished stainless steel of the refrigerator, she catches a glimpse of the half moon of fruit juice on her face and darts through the lounge to her downstairs bathroom for a whip round with a flannel. Well, I say darts, but as you may have noticed, one can't really dart anywhere in a skirt that tight. We'll allow Charlie some privacy while she cleans up, and while we're hovering here in the kitchen, it might be a good time to tell you a little bit about Charlie's parents. You probably saw this coming, or just remembered it from the first chapter, but Charlie's parents knew Bill Bacon. That's right, it was Charlie's dad whom Bill hired when he started his box manufacturing business. And it was he who was so inspired that he promptly naffed off down to Washington DC to start his own tyre balancing concern. The tyre balancing concern treated Charlie's dad and mum, well, 
but it was a demanding mistress, and after being graced with the birth of their daughter, there just never seemed to be enough time to get around to making her a little brother or sister. So much like our friend Sam Curtis, Charlie Page is an only child. And exactly like Sam, she enjoyed a happy and secure childhood full of love and happiness. The only slight rub being is that she hates having what she considers to be a horrid boy's name. Charlie's back from the bathroom now and looking tip-top and ready to take on anything. After popping some well-polished shoes into a large designer handbags, she slips on a pair of perfect white trainers and glossing over the fact she knew tripped over her own feet on the way to the front door, I'm sure you agree that Charlie Page is the epitome of class and sophistication. So now you've met Sam and Charlie. Or more accurately, you've met Sam and Charlie as they were way back in January, and they've changed quite a lot since then, and I'm going to tell you why. If you promise to pay attention, I'll promise not to keep jumping back and forward in time like this. I don't know about you, but it makes me feel a bit giddy. Sorry to interrupt and talk over the pretty music, um, which I made, but I just want to explain that if you've heard this podcast and enjoyed it, then please subscribe and please do all the rating and, and all that stuff that everyone tells everyone to do these days. I thought it might be worth explaining as well that my podcast comes in two flavours. You've just heard season two, which is me reading a novel, so obviously listen to it in order if you want it to make more sense than it would do if you didn't. The other flavour, season one, runs concurrently and is based on mostly interviews and conversations with inspiring and interesting people with interesting things to say. So subscribe and you get both flavours. How good is that? Right, please like, subscribe and all the stuff that every other podcast host in the world asks you to do. I know everyone asks you to do it, but it's because it makes a huge difference. If you enjoy this, then just please tell people. Please have a look at my alarmingly crappy website at andrewculture.com I should also point out it's deliberately crappy I'm, I do this stuff professionally so it's my own odd sense of humour anyway I'm just rattling on about a ton of crap now let's put the pretty music back on for a second <laughs>